I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio versus the Martians. This month, Star Trek The Next Generation. Perhaps Wayne Campbell from Wayne's World said it best, Star Trek The Next Generation is in many ways superior to, but will never be as recognized as, the original. The original series' cultural influence is now beyond dispute, a touchstone of pop culture and a universal symbol of forward-looking sci-fi. But could a derivative work, shoehorned into a new decade, have any hope of superseding the original? Rising out of the ashes of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's two-decades-long quest to resurrect the original series on TV, four feature films starring the original series cast had came and went, two of which were critical and box office successes. Those victories greased the skids for a return to television. This time, it would be an entirely new series. Naturally, the fandom at large was skeptical whether or not lightning could strike twice, as Trek historian Larry Nemechek put it. Thus began the saga of the Enterprise 1701D, commanded by Jean-Luc Picard, with his ensemble cast in a federation 80 years after the era of Kirk and Spock. Theirs was a 30-year mission of exploration, with state-of-the-art technology and a united federation of planets stronger, smarter, and more confident, and finally at peace with the Klingons. To borrow a phrase from the eminently quotable Mike Gillis, it was fucking glorious. The series would run seven seasons, 176 episodes in total, and looking back nearly 30 years after its debut, TNG is arguably the best science fiction show ever created for television. At its peak, it would garner ratings that would rival Cheers, Jeopardy, and Monday Night Football, and that success would spawn subsequent series, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and four feature films. And those reasons are, for my money, the strongest repudiation of Wayne Campbell's Gambit. What I love about TNG, though, is what makes it nearly impossible to appear on TV now in the 21st century. It's optimism, undaunted in the face of man's capacity for ugliness. It's the ultimate repudiation of Jack Bauer. In the pilot episode, Encounter at Farpoint, the omnipotent trickster called Q puts humanity on trial, calling them a dangerously savage child race. And Picard steps up to the plate and promises that their actions will exonerate the human race. Man, that's an insanely high bar to set for a syndicated space drama, and I contend that they met and exceeded that standard. The ensemble of characters are funny, they're intelligent and brave, and they beckon the audience to be the same. They were role models and damned good ones. TNG is, for me, the gold standard for good sci-fi, for good drama, and for good television. But your mileage may vary. So without further ado, here's our first installment of what Mike and I like to call Retcon vs. the Martians, where we dive into our back catalog and take a fresh look at a golden oldie. It's Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm elated to introduce today's panel. First up, returning for the fifth time, five times, 
<laughs> teacher, writer of New Pulp Fiction for Airship 27, and columnist for Comic Book Resources, Comic Should Be Good blog, Greg Hatcher. Welcome back. Thank you very much. We love you here. This is the second month in a row. I know. I, I, I feel sort of... <laughs> sort of blushing i would blush and simper except that's terrible in a grown man when it goes on and on <laughs> okay thanks next up gamer author of numerous supplements for numenera and the strange tabletop role-playing game systems and vigilant winemonger ryan chaddock welcome back sir <laughs> Uh, awesome to be here. Very, very excited about this. <laughs> Last but never least, matter to my antimatter, Riker to my Picard, Corbin Burnson Q to my John Delancey Q, <laughs> Mike Gillis. Mike and Casey on the podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, uh, Greg, I really want to start with you. Um, uh, you know, you're a guy who I imagine grew up with a world where there was only the original series. Oh, yeah. And uh, Next Generation obviously built on what uh, the original series started. Can you tell me what uh, TNG did to build onto that universe? Well, I mean, the in terms of the fiction that they did, it's it's all there in the episodes. In terms of the fan goodwill, there's a certain mythology and mischaracterization, I think, that's come up around this in the years since the show aired, the idea that there's old Trek versus new Trek or that there was some kind of schism. And that really wasn't, that was not my experience. Hmm. There were a lot of us, first of all, that only experienced Star Trek through reruns and books and comics. And, you know, for years that was all there was. Mm Mm-hmm. There'd be, you know, James Doohan would give a talk at a community college and we'd go and, and and that would be as close as we got. And then the movie started to happen. And uh, the first one, Star Trek, the motion picture, we all we we so desperately wanted to love it that we kind of talked <laughs> ourselves into loving it because it was back. It was more Star Trek. It mm-hmm. was it was more. It was kind of like Star, it was Star, beige. Star, it was Star yeah. Trek episode one is what it was. Yeah. 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 But better than Star, Star Wars episode one. <laughs> yeah. And we um, and beige. And <laughs> well, but that was that was the trouble is we we. The, especially since the first hour of that movie where everybody's gathering, you know, mm-hmm. and it's the, the the band is back together and we're all getting very excited. And then the rest of the movie is just a lot of looking around. And Sulu swallowing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and and so then there was Wrath of Khan and, and that was the one that we'd all been waiting for. Hmm. But the trouble was... Behind the scenes, Gene Roddenberry was getting frozen out of his creation. So had this be in his mind about proving that his vision of Star Trek, the sort of beige, forward-looking, utopian vision, as opposed to, you know, hornblower in space, mm-hmm. wagon train in space, mm-hmm. shoot up Western version, was the version that fans would come to it. Now, those of us out in the audience really didn't have any grasp of that. All we knew is that we were, once again, we were going to get more. And and the pedigree looked really good. Star Trek is a show that has been so documented. It's insanely documented compared to any other television series ever in the history of ever. Um, and so most of us that are fans of the show are aware of this. We own the books, we read the books. So when we heard that David Gerald was writing the series Bible and Dorothy Fontana was Mm. back and Mm -hmm. Bob Jessman was back, you know, we were all very excited about that. We, you know, the cast is like, we're, we love the cast, but really 
most fans are on some level they're about the world building and the fiction and the writing sure. so if the writers are there we're on board and um and that first episode paid it off. It felt like Star Trek. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good place to, to move on here. Because um, I want to go to Ryan, who I know is a sci-fi fan, who's dipped his toes in both Starz's franchises, Star Trek and Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. you're, really, you're really into wars. I know that, right? You're wars. It's all <laughs> no, about wars. No, just stars. I'm this into stars. Stars's. <laughs> stars <is. They're>, they're, <laughs> they're non-overlapping magisteria, right? These two franchises. How, how do you regard TNG being a wars man? You know, it's kind of funny because I... Because I know you, Casey, I don't think of myself as a Trekkie, but I think if I didn't know you, I would, right? Because you can't outshine the master, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I don't even want to get it. I mean, there's other areas, you know. Growing, <laughs> no, don't get into those. That's let's not get into stuff. That sounds so like, dirty. <laughs> no, but you know Listen, what I mean. I've like, only ever been to two Star Trek conventions in my whole life. That's it. Uh, right, but I I feel like you're a real Trekkie, and I'm like. A guy who's seen all of Star Trek and who, like, I literally have the Star Trek technical manual right next to me and I'm, I'm like, mm. you know, and so it's next to my bed, but I'm still not <laughs> quite, like, I, I still feel like if I called myself a Trekkie, that would be going too far, right? Okay. <laughs> like, okay. We live in a weird world where that's, I think, that, that I'm just not quite there, oh. right? Uh, I'm not a fanatic. My question is, is how do you regard TNG? Uh, in Star Trek, but also as it relates to sci-fi in general, which there's another property that you love even more. Well, uh, something that has the time to tell a long story really has its own kind of special place, right? A TV show is so different from a series of movies um, where they really can mess up here and there, and and, and the scrutiny just isn't the same. Hmm. I mean, when I look at any given episode of Star Trek TNG... Uh, I'm I'm I cringe sometimes. You know, I, well, every time there's always something cringeworthy in there, mm-hmm. um, and we would never, you know, it, you just don't hold these things up to the same scrutiny. You can love it so much more, and you get so much more out of the larger, broader theme. You know, where is each individual episode of Star Trek is about sort of failures in the human condition, and yet it is ultimately. The broader sense is that humanity is um, can can go out and reach the stars and do great things. Hmm. Uh, so I I think that that's the really interesting thing about that uh, sci-fi extended over so many episodes and so many seasons and so many years and so many different shows. Especially if you compare it to the spinoffs um, that came out of TNG, um, it really has a theme. It really has a more traditional Star Trek theme. Hmm. Uh, and I'm a niner, you know. I'm I'm very much uh-huh. Deep Space Nine is by far my favorite. I knew that. Uh, I knew that. That's really to me. I I compare it far more to to DS Nine than I would to Star Trek, uh, Star Wars. Interesting. Um, okay. All right. Well, a, hold even that. As a big Star Wars. Hold that thought because we will get into that point in a little bit later. I want to get Mike uh, Mike's initial impressions. So I think you're like me in many ways. One of which is that uh, I think you were probably aware of and had seen TOS when you were young enough for it to be the only Trek that was ever in existence, but that TNG was the first T- Star Trek show that you really hooked you in and made you familiar with it. So tell me about um, where Mike Gillis started with Star Trek TNG. With TNG, I probably first started seeing it in reruns because it was a show that was actually aired in first-run syndication. Right. So there were a lot of reruns that were playing right away. And I think it's a show that was kind of a slow burn for me. I became a fan 
gradually. So I guess it's kind of like the X-Files, where I was not a week-to-week watcher of Star Trek The Next Generation, but I'd seen a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation over the years, both as it aired and also in reruns, because there was always at least one local channel which had reruns of, like, original Trek and Cheers, and usually Star Trek The Next Generation was always part of that lineup. So I'd see a lot of it, and you could sort of tell, kind of like with Law & Order is now, Hmm. you don't really know where this episode falls in the series, Except for, you know, like, oh, okay, well, the uniforms look a lot better in this one than they did when they were, like, onesies with the open wide neck. Right. <laughs> but you could sort of see the show grow in sort of a weird way. And for me, Star Trek, until I really got into Next Gen, Star Trek was a movies uh, series. Hmm. I think the first one I saw was probably Star Trek Four, which is, you know, the whale one that everyone knows about. Right. And the Enterprise doesn't even show up in that one until the very end. Right. So for me, there was always this distinct difference between next gen and the originals that they were the television star trek to me hmm. and that the kirk and spock crew that was movie star trek and when you'd have these moments where one of the original crew whether it was spock or scotty would show up on next generation it was a big deal hmm. because it was like a movie star appearing on your tv show and i i just loved it i remember one of my favorite episodes is the episode where scotty appears that they find him in this uh, transporter loop that he's been stuck in for 70-something years. And it's about him having to adjust to this new world that he's in where the technology is a lot more advanced. And suddenly he's not the technological wizard that he was in the first series. And um, I remember that feeling like such a major deal because this is a guy I'd seen in movies on a TV show. And I think there's a much thinner line between those two things now mm-hmm. than there probably ever has been where right. – Brian Cranston is mostly a TV actor, but he doesn't feel like any smaller of a star than anyone that's like an A-list star appearing in movies. Right. Where at one point that was a big deal. So the idea of Shatner meeting Picard, you know, on uh, Star Trek Generations, that was a big deal. That was the crossover that everyone had sort of waited for. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was kind of a slow burn of just kind of meeting this TV show. And for me, it was the Star Trek. I mean, it has a subtitle, but for me, for the longest time, it was prime, my primary vector to knowing this franchise on television. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's one thing I wanted to talk about is because there's a few things that you could say that makes any Star Trek a Trek show. Um, and one of the ones for me is an ensemble cast. So you can do – you could probably easily write a Star Trek show that's about a single guy in space – having to solve a problem and going and uh and uh, fighting the Klingons and getting home the what a Star Trek series relies on the fact that you have the storytelling through um a cast of characters they all represent sort of one facet of the human condition in this world and they all represent a different sort of a different sort of aspect of the human ideal being presented um in Star Trek uh, you know, there was the Holy Trinity of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in the original, but TNG made this deliberate attempt to cast a pretty large stable. It was seven characters, eight if you count the on-again, off-again Wesley Crusher. Um, and if it didn't give them all equal standing, it gave them equal prominence as far as characters in this world. And I want uh, I wanted you guys to sort of bandy about the idea of whether or not you think that their idea of ensemble was a success or is do what you look back on it is like groaning every time that you have to sit through a Troy episode or when Jordy has to try to, you know, date women. You know? I always remember that there was an interaction that I had with a professor at film school who was talking to us about screenwriting and he said that 
it's really hard to write a scene where there's a bunch of characters and they're all contributing to a conversation. And the example that he always gave for a show to watch on how to do that was Star Trek The Next Generation. Hmm. He says you can have like seven people sitting in a room and they all contribute to the conversation. They are all given something to do. They're all given something to say. So I think it was actually far more balanced than the original series ever was. That Kirk, Spock, and McCoy were that trinity you mentioned. And occasionally Scotty would get something to do. But the thing that made Star Trek for The Voyage Home really interesting was that those side characters like Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu had way more to do in that movie than they almost ever have to do. Because usually Kirk is making a decision and you occasionally have the camera go to the rest of them and they just look concerned. (laughs) And they'll get a line like, you know, Captain, they've got us in our tractor beam or, you know, I'm hailing them now, sir. I mean, that's the sort of stuff (laughs) most of them get to say. But... They contribute a lot more in Next Gen, and I think they made more of an effort to do episodes about side characters mm-hmm. in a way that they never did in the original series. Right, and, and I submit to you, anytime Barkley is the lead character in a, in a show, you know? Yeah, they never did a version of that for the original series. Occasionally, there's right. a couple side characters like Riley and some others, right. and they get an episode where they're infected with some space virus, and that's what gives them that role. But they're never the focal character. They're never the one like, let's stop and tell an episode entirely from this different person's point of view. It never moves the camera off of Kirk too much. Hmm. I think Spock is the only person who ever got that kind of starring role, maybe McCoy occasionally. But there are episodes about Next Gen that are just about Troy or just about Worf or just about Data, right? just about Riker. And I don't know any other Star Trek series before this that ever focus that much on side characters. They really invested in this cast. Well, that's baked into the design. Hmm. What I was saying before, Star Trek is hugely documented. And if you really want to know where Star Trek The Next Generation came from, the way it was designed, you have to look at a book called The World of Star Trek by David Gerald, which was hmm. originally it was about the original series. And the last quarter of that book is a critical analysis of Star Trek, the things they did right, the things they could have done better. And the first person to pick up that book when The Next Generation was being talked about was Gene Roddenberry. Hmm. And he called Gerald and he had him, Kevin, write the series Bible. And that Bible is basically designed out of all the points Gerald made in his book. It's an ensemble cast. The captain doesn't go on missions. The away team goes on missions, right. mm, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He took all the things, all the criticisms that had been leveled at the original show and addressed them. At the same time, you have to remember, as Mike pointed out, these character, the original characters were movie stars now. Mm-hmm. That was one of the reasons they wanted to do a TV show. They wanted to have Star Trek without paying movie star salaries. <laughs> and, and one of the ways you get away from that is you design your show as an ensemble where you always have the sword to hold over your actors that they are a tiny cog in a big machine. They are replaceable. And again, hugely documented um, Denise Crosby and Tasha Yar ended up getting written out of the show. Yeah. 
uh, Will Wheaton and Wesley Crusher ended up getting written out of the show. Yeah, These Dr. Were, Crusher almost never barely came back, you know, yeah, from Yeah, stuff like that. And that's mm-hmm. all, that's, you have the freedom to do that when you're a big producer and you have a big ensemble cast. And the show had proven that Star Trek was just as much, if not more, about the world and the concept hmm. as it was about the characters. For a long time, Star Trek actors had been dining out on the idea that Star Trek was about Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy. No, it's about the voyages of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's about exploration. Yeah, that was a big thing because until this show came out, it was a huge risk to have a completely new Enterprise, a completely new crew. Because the idea of doing something like Deep Space Nine or Voyager where the word Enterprise is never said, that is a huge risk. But this showed that Star Trek was bigger than just this trifecta of characters. It was not just the Enterprise, though the Enterprise is in Next Gen. It was about the the concept of Star Trek and that Star Trek could be bigger than just this group of characters and this crew and showed that it's actually the universe that's Star Trek. It's sort of the idea of the Federation is Star Trek, the idea of overcoming those human flaws, because you said, uh, Ryan, that it's about the sort of failures of humanity, but it's about striving against those failures and improving ourselves, even when it's hard. That I think that's really what Star Trek is, and it's in many ways the antithesis of a lot of science fiction that I actually do love as well, which, like, Planet of the Apes is about the failures of humanity, too. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about this in the Planet of the Apes episode, where... Planet of the Apes is the stick and Star Trek is the carrot. That it's about, well, this sucks. This fucking sucks humanity. (laughs) And we have to be better than this. And Star Trek is about saying, look how much nicer stuff we could have if we could move past racism and war and oppression. And money. And money. And we could (laughs) have such nice things and we could explore the stars and have these really cool velour uniforms. And, you know, Planet of the Apes is just about hitting you about what would happen to you if you didn't <laughs> do this. So Star Trek is really kind of interesting is that it is a post-apocalyptic world. That's something that I don't think gets addressed a lot. Right. But it's a post-post-apocalyptic world rather right. than being irrevocably broken like The Walking Dead or uh, Fallout or a lot of these other things that are about talking about the failures of humanity. It says, no, even if we fall that far we can always pull ourselves up and actually be better than what we were. Yeah, I mean, of course, the idea of Star Trek was basically a mirror of the 20th century because uh, the the idea of there being the great World War III and then the prosperity that came after was just mirroring the devastation of the world that was World War II and then the 50s utopian technological optimism that came after. So we were just, of course, mirroring the, you know, and this is the reason why I think TNG is also different is because TNG doesn't really exist in the sort of the Cold War uh, an uh, uh, analog that the TOS exists in. There's the Klingons and the Federation, and they're basically in the cold. It's basically Russians versus the United States. TNG, and it can get pretty saccharine at points. Is is actually in a time when um, it almost presages the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right? Is that a time when uh, mm-hmm. the good white skinned people who uh, talk about democracy um, are finally like, oh, we're all equal, and we're not actually at war with this big other, uh, you know bipolar conflict anymore um we actually get to sort of spread our freedom um not through the barrel of the gun but through a microphone you know um and i I actually want wondering looking back on 20 years now after tng how do we view that that sort of conceit because i think it is kind of a storytelling conceit and it now appears kind of quaint by in our 
21st century goggles. Ryan, you want to pick that up? Well, I, for me, a lot of Star Trek really is about war, though. And I, and I, I think it was about reconceptualizing sort of the, the late 80s, mid 90s, you know, kind of change that, uh, that particularly in the U.S. we sort of went through in terms of thinking about war. Because, I mean, you know, the Romulans get introduced at the end of the first season and they become more and more of a thing. And they really, for me, the Romulans are really defined by TNG in a lot of ways. Um, and so, I, I mean, it's almost the show that sort of showcases them. Um, that's a very different enemy than the Klingons, right? I mean, the Klingons are these, like, they're warlike in the extreme, whereas the the Romulans are sort of a trickier They're spies. Sort of as, foe, they're right? spies yeah. as opposed to foot soldiers. Yeah, and they'll wait for you to do make the first move, and they're pretty smart. And, um, you know, you don't always know what's going on with them is, I think, the main thing I'm getting at here. And I think that that may be, in some ways, the sort of um, representative of sort of an American awakening to a, a bigger world than just a single enemy um, in terms of the USSR. Um, that you know, whether it's terrorism or, or uh, you know, just a more complex uh, <laughs> foreign policy situation. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I I think that you're right, though. That I. It, Politics does, you know, politics is being played out in Star Trek, despite the fact that it looked like Gene Roddenberry maybe was trying to just talk about sort of sci-fi concepts of humanity. Um, it really is this melting pot of ideas about what it is to be human and what we're going through. Um, so I don't know. I I find TNG to be amazing because it really hammers home the concept of a paradise future far more, I think, than the original series. Hmm. Um, this and obviously it's not literally a paradise, but the the idea that we could reach some amazing level of prosperity. I, you know, I have a degree in economics, and people always seem to laugh at the idea that the in the future there might not be money, or that it might be good that we can automate things. Hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I constantly you see articles about people being afraid of uh, machines replacing our work. Well, you know, th- to me, that's the Star Trek future, right? Like nobody's, there's nobody working the counter at McDonald's in Star Trek, right? I, like they've, they've right? Like, that's, that's, that's actually that's a, a good, terrible. That's a good point to bring up, Ryan, because I think that's one of the criticisms that get leveled about this kind of the silliness and over the topness and the saccharineness of it is that it imagines what we think is almost unimaginable right is like how could you not have right. squabbles over people over resources anymore well it's right. it's and worth pointing out that when the show started it turned into a very different show after the first couple of years when gene roddenberry became ill and couldn't be the line producer anymore a lot of this stuff went away and the reason it went away was just because of the sheer mechanics of story construction you can't really construct a drama without conflict right if you posit a future society where conflict is eliminated there's not a lot to do there yeah and and i and i'll not not to interrupt you but uh gene ronbury wanted to make it so the characters were decent human beings and therefore they really didn't have personal conflicts with with each other which actually makes it really hard to have characters that are not in conflict with each other yeah can you imagine a modern writer thinking of that like ever (laughs) 
in a modern TV show being like, nope, none of these characters are in conflict. Like that's <laughs> well, and, what a crazy idea. And it's believe awesome. me, if you read interviews with people that were staffed on the show, that was the brick wall right. that they kept running into. And the the point I was going to make though wasn't even that. It was that the Ferengi ended up being comedy relief, but they began as the new villains. They right. were going to be the new Klingons, mm-hmm. and it's worth pointing out that they were super capitalists. Of course, they were all about money. Yeah, and they were the and, and, the villains. Yeah. And certainly in TNG, or I mean, in, pardon me, in DS9, they bring that out. And I, they, re, they put in Latinum, so there's some kind of currency to worry about. Right. But at the same time, like, I, I really enjoy this idea that a society exists even among capitalist empires like the Ferengi. That's like, no, no, we really can just give everybody stuff. stuff. Yeah, uh, this is kind of a I post- mean, I don't. Yeah, it's kind of a post-scarcity universe that they sort of exist in. And actually, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, which happened right in the middle of Star Trek The Next Generation, Mm -hmm. is that it didn't affect Star Trek The Next Generation that much because Star Trek The Next Generation was already in the mindset of moving past that. Right. That... You have the characters in the original series that sort of does that to a lesser extent, but they're still in a Cold War sort of situation with right. both the Romulans and the Klingons. And their way of saying we're going to – China and Russia. Yeah, China and Russia. And our kind of way of saying uh, that we were moved past our old ways was the inclusion of the character of Chekhov on right. Star Trek. Right. That you had this Russian character at the height of the Cold War as a member of the crew. And, of course, they did a lot of things at his expense, and there was a lot of humor laughing at the, him getting uh, – you know, g- giving credit to Russia for all these <laughs> absurd things. And there was a lot of him playing uh, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man and uh, – well, no, no, I'm sorry. I was, was going to say the silliest a... thing is his early episode wig, but Christ, yeah, maybe early... when you get past that, um, he was definitely <laughs> oh, in there. Oh, Mr. Green, he's so serene. Oh, wait, that wasn't Chekhov who saying that? That was Davy Jones? Oh. Yeah, who he okay. looks a lot like. Okay. But yeah, the you look at uh, Next Generation and you, ha- you have that Cold War scenario from the original series is already gone. The, the Klingons are our allies. Right. They're not our enemy anymore. Of course, it's not always comfortable because the Klingons are still very warlike and they're all about these public shows of strength and stuff like that. So you have to learn how to, <laughs> to relate to them in a way where they can still puff their chests out. Right. But you're still an ally. Now, the Klingons come to their aid quite a few times. And a Klingon is actually a member of the crew. Yeah. The I- character of, of Worf. And what's really interesting is that when the Cold War ended, the Cold War of the Star Trek universe had been over for several years. Mm -hmm. And it was the original series movies that addressed the fall of the Berlin Wall with Star Trek VI far more than Star Trek The Next Generation ever did because they were ahead of the curve on that front. Right. It was a a retcon, basically. Um, You brought up the Klingons. I think this is important because, you know, the Klingons were – had been from the TOS uh, era – the most recognizable uh, alien, you know. If you think if you think Star Trek and aliens, you either think Vulcans or Klingons. Um, but uh, exp- what TNG did was they expanded hugely on their politics, on their culture, and they finally got to re- reveal their homeworld, which they had only sort of. Uh, they I think they had called it Kling before. It was the homeworld of Kling. Um, but they gave it far more screen time in TNG than they did the other alien races that they had. In fact, I think Ronald D. Moore, who is is the showrunner who uh, is probably the most successful showrunner to graduate from the stable of TNG and move on, was responsible for flushing out most of the big Klingon character arcs in TNG. Um, 
he did Sins of the Father, which was Worf's uh, discommendation episode, the two-part redemption two-parter, and then Rightful Heir, which was the return of the clone Kaelas. Like, they gave Klingons so much more focus and attention and fleshed them out than they did any other alien. And I'm wanting to know from you guys whether or not this, uh, that Klingons are actually as cool as you thought they were when you were 14 years old. Um, as I thought they were fucking awesome, or if they are, as my wife says after watching the uh, the episode where Riker goes and volunteers to be on the Klingon ship, if Klingons were just dumb, like basically <laughs> the Klingons in that were just foolish, they were just needlessly stupid. They're like, why are you making the wrong decision constantly? Well, because we need something to happen in this episode. Are Klingons cool now, or are they really just silly? two-dimensional cardboard cutouts. I, I like that they kind of dress like a mix between the gorillas in Planet of the Apes and the band Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. Those platform oh boots. <laughs> I'm I never, never going to be able to unsee that now. <laughs> <laughs> they basically all look like Gene Simmons. It's pretty cool. They even they have do. the hair kind of like Gene Simmons, you know, <laughs> except instead of the top knot, they've got this sort of cranial ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, they bark a lot, and a thing I enjoyed about watching them is that they probably laugh more than any other characters on Star Trek. The that's, next generation. That's true. That's true. They in, they hit each other and stuff, and they're constantly saying, "Well, of course, the second in command has to kill the captain." And <laughs> I guess they have a whole system of that. But they tend to enjoy being Klingons more than the Federation tends to enjoy being enlightened. Hmm. Well, the cool thing about the Klingons, and I think Next Generation kind of backed into this because they were just so hell bent on not being the original series. They didn't want to do Vulcans. They didn't want to, you know, it took them quite a while to even get to the Romulans. They were really trying to break new ground. But they discovered something that the original series discovered, which is that America enjoys seeing an alien culture unfold on television, Mm -hmm. that that's part of the fun of world building in Star Trek. And they didn't have Vulcans, but they did have a Klingon. And I think that's kind of how Ron Moore latched on to this whole well, let's let's do more with the Klingons. You know, let's do this. And each one kind of led to the next, and it suddenly turned into a thing for them. Um, but I, th- I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And um, and also, with a warrior culture, you get to do fight scenes. You get to do right. conflict. Yeah. You get to do a lot of the stuff that was basically verboten on the Enterprise Bridge. So you've got that going for it. It was... I don't know how much of it was by design and how much of it was a happy accident. And mm. I'm, I'm leaning more towards the accident theory myself. They just backed into something. I was like, wow, that worked. Let's do that again. <laughs> Ryan Klingons, yay or nay? Can, I, I guess I'll play, I'll play the, uh, the naysayer role here. <laughs> I don't have the strongest feeling on this, but I, I'll, I'll play the role. Um, I, I don't like it when our science fiction or fiction in general tries to depict barbarians like barbarian cultures i think that it's always so simplistic and two-dimensional um and the klingons are really the depiction that comes to mind when i think about it um like of of course they're they always seem kind of dumb and have like just really counterintuitive uh (laughs) traditions that would destroy their culture like you know having having the second in command kill their captain you know uh, like how do they end up having any <laughs> any experienced captains then you know i i mean j- just the whole thing always seems so silly to me their their violent nature like who who maintains their technology right, right. like <laughs> they've got an empire that's massive it's really just based on slaves and if it is that 
that would be more interesting to depict than what we see, which is the glorification of their culture in, you know, and just that it's, oh, well, they're warriors and they're great because they have war and it sucks that they beat each other up. Like, well, <laughs> no, clearly their culture is based on enslavement. Let's talk about that. Hmm. I, I don't know. I, the whole thing just seems very, very shallow to me. Um, I mean, I, I like the fact, like Greg is saying, that they did world building with it and really, really went, went in depth. And one of my favorite things is, you know, K-Less. I just love that they went into the religion. Yeah, and it's cool. And I, I thought that was great. I just, the actual choices they made, I would have been more happy if they had done all that stuff with Romulans more, okay. I guess. All right, that's a good place to stop. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with more TNG. Okay, and we're back. This month's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians, and we're doing Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, now that I've got all these this brain trust in the room, um, I want to talk about Roddenberry's main vision, or maybe you'd call it a conceit. Um, TNG shaved a sharper edge into this Roddenberryan vision of an explicitly atheist Starfleet. Um, in fact, the TNG TS, DS9 writer Ira Stephen Bear mentioned that the tension of having to write characters as atheists, despite the fact that the showrunners weren't, made it very difficult to do their job at some points. Um, sometimes it's heavy-handed, like, say, in Who Watches the Watchers, um, and sometimes it's expressed as sort of the natural extension of these characters' scope as explorers. Um, they're explorers. They're skeptics, Right. Um, but they also have to be extremely open-minded in the weird universe that that, uh, st- that Starfleet lives in. In retrospect with TNG, how convincingly do you think they did atheist Starfleet? It was always kind of a weird thing because there's still a, a network TV show. And even though they're in first-run syndication and their deals are with individual stations, uh, there wasn't a network to really yell at them or demand things the way there was in the original Trek. Because original Trek danced around this sort of stuff, too. So it's a mixed bag, given that you have a mix of writers and a mix of creators that are working on this sort of stuff. So television and, and even movies to a lesser extent, the auteur thing isn't as true as we want it to be. Right. So if Gene Roddenberry kind of wanted an explicitly sort of secular humanist view of the future... You get it in places and you don't in others. Mm-hmm. And there's places where you can tell it's just the influence of all these different writers. Um, I I mean, obviously, I am an atheist and I like the idea of a secular humanist future where people aren't killing each other over the sort of uh, myths and things that we have nowadays and that we've moved past that point. Um But I also am not a fan of, I guess you could say, Kirk Cameron fiction, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I don't think Star Trek ever hits the idea of just kind of just vocally masturbating over your own ideology and its superiority through fiction where you, I don't think Star Trek ever really created straw men, religious figure characters on the show that I can remember with any, and maybe that's the influence of having a mix of writers with different belief systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was there and I like that it's subtle. I like that if the characters are non-religious, they're not constantly talking about religion. Mm-hmm. Um, they hardly talk about it at all. I mean, I'm a little bit sad that Christmas doesn't seem to exist anymore, <laughs> except in Picard's uh, fantasy in the Nexus. I mean, that's the only place where you see someone decorating a Christmas tree. 
I think the only holiday we actually see on Star Trek The Next Generation is Captain Picard Day. Yes. Which is still pretty cool. I, I think we could probably find a way to incorporate that as sort of our new Festivus. But I don't know. I guess for the most part, um, religion doesn't become an issue on Star Trek until you get into things like Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And I think they were kind of hands-off about it. Um I think there's a lot of interesting stories you can tell with that because religion is clearly a part of how cultures evolve and change. And it's undoubtedly a huge part of our culture. I mean, it's almost impossible to speak English without a lot of these phrases that are metaphors that actually f- first find uh, their appearance in a in a piece of scripture. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things like, you know, the Good Samaritan or – so it's almost impossible to completely divorce yourself. I mean, there's a lot of ancient literature you just cannot read if you don't have a basic understanding of certain things. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Star Trek ever became so heavy-handed that it went into that Kirk Cameron territory. Mm -hmm. Because that, to me, is it's almost worse if a show gets there and it's an ideology that I share. Because it's one thing, if I'm watching Kirk Cameron, I'm like, my God, this is awful, and it's heavy-handed, and it's just fucking terrible. But it's another thing, like with Captain Planet, if it's an ideology I share, because it's just (laughs) as bad, plus it's slightly embarrassing. And I'm really glad that Star Trek never really went there well but don't they with the with the prime directive i i feel like even the original series did this on some level where they're they're constantly sort of either doing it themselves or or stumbling onto worlds that have sort of cults going on around some kind of powerful technology or alien oh you mean captain kirk is the the god killer where he talks alien robot gods into blowing themselves up i think he does it like six times it's been said of right. Gene Roddenberry that he really only had one basic story in him. The Enterprise meets God, and it's either insane, a child, or a computer. And that happened yeah. many times. Yeah. And, and so to I, me, that's, that's religion, right? That's I, commentary on, on what, you know, this idea that there are all these different worlds and they happen to have it, it, strange things happen and they, everybody invents a religion around them. To me, that's commentary. I mean, it was... It was influential on me as a child, I think. Well, let's. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that everyone here is familiar with who watches The Watchers, the third season episode that has uh, stars Ray Weiss from uh, Twin Peaks fame. Oh my God, that was Ray Weiss. Yeah, it's it's about it's a basically a a, a story that's filmed at uh, Vasquez Rocks, <laughs> and it has a a group of proto Vulcan uh, primitive quote unquote primitive uh, um, sort of creatures who. Because of an accident, um, Federation scientists who've been observing their culture get exposed, and basically they've contaminated their culture by making them believe that these Federation people are gods, essentially. And uh, the entire episode is about Picard having to do the delicate dance of not trying to pollute their culture even further, but also dealing with the fact that he himself is going to is becoming worshipped as a god because one of the one of these proto Vulcans sees him and thinks that he needs to make a sacrifice to to Picard. And there's a moment when Picard says, you know, um, where oh, where one of the scientists asks him to play along and just say, you know, guys, just I'm your god. Sure, I'm the god, but you guys just uh, carry along. A C three PO move. Uh, yes, a C three PO move. But yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. but Picard basically says, "I will not abandon them to a life of superstition and fear. I will not do this." You know, and that's a, as as explicit of a uh, explicit of a sort of an anti theist screed that you can as you could get. But also, I think on the same time, Picard does this incredibly satisfying payoff to this, where he takes the uh, the one of the elders on board 
shows her like, oh, this is our technology. We're like you. We just are. A, we just are a little further along in our development, and I don't have control over all this. So I think that as a payoff was incredibly well done. Even though I feel like the the uh, the sort of the heavy handedness of Picard's delivery maybe pushed it a little too much for some viewers. Well, it's one of my favorite episodes. There, you know, and again, when by the time you're hitting the third season, Roddenberry's not really around that much anymore, and the right. show is really finding its feet. So I think you have that to put in the plus column. I I think that there are two separate discussions to be had on the issue. The way it was under the Roddenberry regime and the way it was after he retired and then passed away. Because it literally, the TNG, is, to my way of seeing it, is almost two different television series because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. You look at the first two seasons where they're operating under all these edicts about things you can't do and things they don't do in the future and and the writers are you know laboring under these huge restraints and then in later seasons when for example ron moore discovers that hey we can go to the klingon home planet and have fights right you know and just they they find all the workarounds to the the original premise things that were laid down for them and um i i think the original heavy-handedness was mostly from Roddenberry, and then later on it was coming more from a place of, let's really look at it. Let's go there. Let's find out what it's really like to deal with a culture where you have to somehow make your prime directive work. The the prime Mm -hmm. directive stories were always the most interesting when it was being broken or violated. That's Mm -hmm. that's where that story happened. Yeah, well, that was testing. That was te- that was the sort of the litmus test for interventionism because uh, you know they're explorers, but and by their very nature, they're usually they're usually uh, uh, unintentionally intervening in the course of another culture, which is actually anathema to their whole mission. Right? Their mission is explore, don't muck around, but to create good conflict <laughs> and good narrative. They're right. always intervening. Well, opening know? diplomatic relations is a form of contaminating <laughs> their culture by adding a new element to it, which is, right. you know right. who I am, and we can actually exchange goods and science and cultural ideas. I, and I really actually loved, for, so First Contact, not the movie, but the episode that was about the introduction, about them actually m- m- uh, extending the olive branch and saying, you're at the point in time when this is when the Federation says, we decide this is the moment when you're most ready to to talk with us right because there are dangers out there you could your civilization could reach out of your own solar system and run into the klingons and you would be gone and your entire civilization would be destroyed or enslaved um and i thought that was that's also a fascinating counterpoint too because that's their uh that's their pax romana pax federation uh sort of moment well Well, from the perspective of the people that are being met by the federation do you trust them too when right. your entire vector, your entire entry point well, to anything in the galaxy is this group of friendly people in colorful uniforms who show up and say that you're friends, <laughs> isn't that also the plot of the miniseries V? <laughs> no, but if it's, if, it's, if it's Troy with the low neckline, you're all good. You're all good. <laughs> it seems like that would be the way they trick you. I mean, it's like, no, no. Well, that is exactly the trick that they used on V. Yeah. They put the lizards in sexy human suits. <laughs> they all dress like they're in Devo. I mean, that's how you get them, especially in the 80s. Well, and like this is this is why the Bajorans, the Bajorans are, you know, hesitant to join, right? I guess that's DS9 by that point. But yeah, no, they play that out, this idea that, 
the Federation isn't, you know, it's clearly not perfect. Like, and you look at the Klingons and it's like, well, maybe if we could <laughs> just get their military backing and not their, uh, you know, taking us over kind of thing. I imagine, I, I don't know. It's so interesting. The, the idea of first contact over and over again is a fascinating moment. And in fact, I think that that's the best part of uh, Into Darkness as a movie is just that beginning stuff with the, the it, uh, it is the best part that is the part at the very that was the part that I teared up near the very end right. when you saw Enterprise and then the rest of the movie was just being in shock <laughs> just being d- dazed <laughs> I think it was a letdown after seeing how good that part was right. I know yeah. Yeah. that was the only part that felt uh, like Star Trek in it which is that we're actually exactly. interacting with aliens and we're trying not to interfere yeah. but we're trying to save the day at the same time right. and it's weird because that's the only part of the movie that gets better the more I think about it and it's yeah. the re- I just sort of want to cut that part out and expand that into an entire movie hmm Interesting. You can still shoot the giant dinosaur thing and run and yell, but you can still do all the Star Trek stuff. A lot of what is coming up and what we've been talking about is due to a phenomenon that I don't think any other television show has had the benefit of. Star Trek has hindsight. Yeah. Star Trek The yeah. Next Generation has hindsight. So a lot of the people that worked on the show were fans of the original show. They were kids when the original show was on the air. And they this was their chance to say, hey, what does the Klingon home planet look like? What mm-hmm. does First Contact look like? How does that work? And they kind of reverse engineered a lot of these stories out of stuff that was hinted at on the original show or that... You know, Star Trek as a phenomenon, as a fan phenomenon, had literally decades of of fanzines and fan-constructed solutions to these things. The character of Geordi LaForge began as an homage to a handicapped yeah. fan yeah. that showed up at a convention. And and I I think it's important to remember that the show didn't happen in a vacuum that um, on the one hand you had Roddenberry desperately trying to justify that he was better than what they were doing at the movies and on the other hand you had all these fans turned pro bringing their a game to it and it was that sort of collision of sensibilities that ended up giving us the next generation hmm interesting yeah the thing that I find kind of really interesting with it is that it's a conflict between Star Trek being this philosophy and this way of the universe being and us being better than certain things. Many of those certain things make for good drama. And I know that, the, like we talked about before, uh, Ronald D. Moore and a lot of others, I saw a documentary by uh, Gene Roddenberry's son that came mm-hmm. out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. where he actually interviewed a lot of the people, including Ronald D. Moore, who is the showrunner from later seasons, went on to do the new Battlestar Galactica show. Right. And... He's being incredibly diplomatic while saying this, Ronald D. Moore, but there's a sense where he talks about a lot of the things that the creators and writers wanted to do were just getting shot down by Gene Roddenberry. One of them, again, the conflict between characters. And they said one of the things they loved in original Star Trek were these just heated philosophical debates between McCoy and Spock. That was a big part of it, that both McCoy and Spock are incredibly progressive, intelligent, moral people. But they have very different philosophies of the world that Picard uh, – that uh, Spock is a lot more, you know, hard hard evidence, uh, logic, you know, cause and effect, 
taking feeling out of it completely. And then McCoy is incredibly compassionate, but also passionate and saying, no, this is wrong. And I'm going to keep yelling about it until somebody (laughs) does something about this. And good God, man. Uh, That's what I love about it. These characters are so different. But neither one of them is painted as the bad guy, that they both have very different sets of priorities. And then, you know, the, the thing in the very middle of this battle, of course, is Kirk, who sort of takes the best of both worlds. And they weren't letting the writers have that in the new Star Trek. And a lot of the writers, again, you mentioned, Greg, they grew up wanting to do Star Trek. And that was this integral part of the Star Trek experience. And it was being denied because in the decades since the original series ended, it wasn't just this fun escapist science fiction adventure show. It was a philosophy. It was a way of looking at the world. And it was a, a projection of what kind of world we wanted. And I think that on some level, Gene Roddenberry took it too much to heart and fell too hard into that and got in the way of really good drama. And you see more of that sort of come out in later seasons where we see more conflict between people and characters like Ensign Rowe yeah. and yeah. Barkley mm-hmm. and uh, what is her name? She comes on in the episode The Best of Both Worlds as sort of the backup second. Shel- com- Shelby. Oh, yes. Um, Lieutenant Commander Shelby. And you see a real conflict between her and Riker in the way of doing things mm-hmm. because she's too much like yeah. the younger Riker. Wait, wait a minute. Humans actually do have ambition? Oh, yeah. all right. Nice. <laughs> and Riker also being sort of caught in his ways and also being a bit of a jerk to her over the course of that and not sort of valuing it. And they both have to kind of meet in the middle later in that episode and come together to actually battle once Picard is taken by the Borg and they have to, to fight the Borg without Picard. Mm-hmm. So that best of the both worlds is, was inevitable for this discussion, right? I mean, uh, I don't know how many times I've seen the claim that Best of Both Worlds is the best episode of Next Generation. I think it's largely considered uh, kind of the peak, the peak at the transition point. I think from the old first two seasons to the the new Star Trek, um, and certainly it was a breakthrough moment. Um, but it wasn't it also the beginning of sort of this more gritty, dark action facade that uh, we would see mirrored later in the show and also later in the movies that could be that ended up for me it ended up being its undoing with the last two of the feature film movies is that uh they tried to shoehorn um this great uh universe for storytelling and drama into oh look we can add the borg and they're they're relentless and we've got to kick some ass well there's merit to that criticism but again you have to remember especially for those of us that were there from the beginning who were desperately wanting to love it and who would who would come away from each episode like we'd see like a first season episode like i don't know the last outpost that just it nothing actually happens right. it just stops <laughs> it, it doesn't even end it just stops and and we you know literally when it was airing friends of mine and i we would build our saturdays around it. i'd go over to my friend mike's and we'd barbecue and we'd watch star trek and we'd talk about it and we were just you know exalted it was almost like a religious service for us you know mm-hmm. it's like it's back star trek is back and then it was Almost good. <laughs> that's, that's almost worse than bad. Yeah, I know. It was so maddening. We'd, we'd say, well, they're they're getting there. It's, it's you know, the, the, the part where they were talking to the Ferengi and in danger was cool for a maybe, minute. Maybe the Fu Manchu midget wasn't the best way to do this. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, and it was like that. So Best of Both Worlds literally was the episode where all of us that were 
saying, yes, this, this is what we were waiting for. This is what we meant. Right. More like this. <clears throat> and um, that was that I think that feeling of huge relief that they had turned a corner is probably why so many of us pick it as a favorite. Hmm. It's not actually my favorite, but um, but I totally get that. It it was it it was a, it was a huge thing. It was an epiphany. Ryan, just in terms of my opinion Be- on that episode, best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I'm I'm I only remember the parts that you've already described. This is the problem. I can't remember everything about the episode, so I I don't think I'm <laughs> okay <laughs> qualified to comment specifically on that episode, Mike. I will say it's a good thing that when they um, assimilated Picard into the Borg Collective, they let him keep both of his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Because I look at some of the Borg, and at least one of them have some sort of gizmo. They just they had to cut that eye out. He yeah. got to keep both his hands, too, instead of having that weird sort of Rube Goldberg tweezer gidget hand. <laughs> because it's sort of like, okay, we got you back, Picard. You're, you're a person again. You're pulled out of this hive mind collective. But we didn't get all your parts back. <laughs> yeah, he was probably missing the spleen or something, right? They got to yeah. take the spleen out. I get a little bandaged up points on his head at the end of that episode. Yeah, he he got he came away pretty clean actually. Yeah, that's yeah. better than a lot of people because you get the impression that you know Borg implants is just like they got to take stuff out of there to make room for that. Well, you know, Picard actually did better than that because uh, even the psychological trauma just he just needed a good cry out in the mud in France, and then he was done. That's like, good enough for me. Just one good cry. Picard's a pretty strong guy, obviously. Um, I think it's a great episode. I think it's an episode that they had built towards for a long time because they hadn't really fought the Borg. And they really effectively built the Borg up as a terrifying enemy. And yeah. I think that was the height of the Borg as a scary thing. And I think you get diminishing returns on the Borg from that episode onward. That they're not yeah. this unstoppable thing anymore. Pretty soon you just hit them over the back of the head with a piece of rebar. And you're just <laughs> you, like, you wow. just No, you just pull the tube out of their cheek and they suddenly collapse. It's like, why were we recalibrating the phasers this whole time? <laughs> All we have to do is just pull bits of them out. Yes. They have to walk watch if there's no nails sticking out of the door jam. Otherwise, the cheek tube might get pulled and they die immediately. <laughs> just put up a tripwire. Ah! They're not very smart. They'll just go right over it. <laughs> yeah. They kind of are basically yeah, no. a weird mix of, of zombies and other things because they do they bite you and you turn into one of them yeah and it's yeah they that, really are zombies basically they're, that, they're smart zombies sorry. that ride around in a giant square <laughs> I, I i really uh, as good as the first contact movie actually was i didn't i didn't like the idea that uh they um that uh, they could be even more zombies where all they needed to do was stick little uh, like nanotube pincers into your flesh and then like you immediately become a Borg. Like it takes all of four seconds for the color to drain out of your face and whoop, you're a Borg. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I think I like about it uh, is that they are really scary. I love First Contact. I think it's yeah. the only next generation movie that I genuinely really like. Hmm. And I think uh, yeah, the- I love that one. It's great. Sorry, go ahead. I know that a lot of a <laughs> I, lot of that movie gets crap nowadays. I don't. I'm really sure why. I think it's aged the best of the next gen movies. It's a mix of a zombie movie and a time travel movie. Yeah, yeah. But I think it also plays again into this thing that Star Trek: The Next Generation really has as its main theme, which is optimism for the future. That it really dives into that post-apocalyptic, post-World War III world. And says, no, it doesn't have to end there. Don't give up. You could always be better than this. And the world that you're going to have is going to be better than this. That instead of just sort of giving up and saying, well, you know, we can't have any nice things until we fix all the potholes and all blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, we're going to go into space at our lowest point. 
And not only is it not going to be a waste of money, it's going to be the best decision we ever made. Mm -hmm. That we're going to continue to strive even from this low point. And I think that's the real difference between Star Trek and a lot of fiction nowadays and why I think Star Trek The Next Generation is almost an impossible show to make. Mm -hmm. And how it's the element in which it probably ages the worst and the best at the same time, which is look at a lot of sci-fi that's come out after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rather than this idea of these infinite possibilities where, wow, all the old enemies have fallen away and now we have this possibility to go into the future. And, we're, you know, look at how presidential campaigns talk about, like the bridge to the 21st century and stuff versus the sort of idea that, of course, we're not going to get rid of money. Are you crazy? Things are of this kind that are bad are always going to be bad. We're never going to get past these elemental bits of how awful we are. And you look at even a lot of shows that I really like, like The Walking Dead. In The Walking Dead, almost every group of other humans they meet are fucking monsters. Mm -hmm. That if you run into anyone, you're not going to rebuild society with these people. The world is irrevocably broken because they're going to be cannibals or they're going to pretend to be your friends and they're just going to steal all your shit and kill you. Or they're going to be, you know, somebody who's just using you for some nefarious purpose. On The Walking Dead, when you run into like a, a group of military people, what is the assumption the audience is going to make? Of course they're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Like in 28 Days Later, of course the military is the bad guy. Of course it's a trap. No shit, people. You know, that's the thing is that there's this idea, and I think this is what's interesting about the relaunch of the Star Wars expanded universe it comes from this same idea. And it's the same idea that goes into it. The difference between Star Trek and Star Wars, beyond the fact that one's a functioning as a TV show and the other one is a series of action movies, is that in Star Wars, the Empire, you know, the big government body that controls the universe is fucking evil. It's corrupt. It uses brutality to get what it wants. And the heroes are these scrappy do-gooders who are rebels and they are fighting the power and they're taking on these people and they're sticking up against a corrupt system. In Star Trek, the good guys are the power. And there's a belief that you can have a system of government, you can have overt power, but it can be restrained, it can be intelligent, it can actually work for the common good without having an evil purpose. And this is that butting of heads that comes in in the Star Trek J.J. Abrams movies, because there's this ongoing belief that I encounter over and over again in fiction that that's not possible, that of course that mm-hmm. powerful body, the Federation can't be good, of course there's a secret, you know, secret shadow government that's run by Peter Weller that doesn't believe in all this and wants to start a war and kill a bunch of people. Because yeah. there's no way the Federation can be good. And if you look at the change in the Star Trek, uh, Star Wars expanded universe, you see that same thing. That in 1991, at the same time as the height of Star Trek The Next Generation, they started doing post-Return of the Jedi novels. And what did they start doing with the New Republic? Is they start making diplomatic relations with other societies, building something. Princess Leia is going to this planet and saying, no, we're going to be part of this new government. It can be great. And they're building something. And, of course, that's not the expanded universe that we have now. What's happening in the modern post-9-11 expanded universe? The war never ended. The empire is still powerful, (laughs) and we're still the rebels fighting the power. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Superman. Superman is like this, you know, angsty, angry thing. We don't believe a powerful thing can be benevolent. And that's what Star Trek The Next Generation has. It says, no, this can be good. 
this can be powerful and it can be restrained in its power and not be a fucking bully. And I just wonder if that sort of science fiction is even possible now. That's the open question because uh, this is a, a perfect time for us to be having this panel. Last week, uh, Paramount and CBS announced that uh, starting in early 2017, they're going to be creating a new Star Trek series. There's no showrunner. There's no plot. There's no indication of who will be on it or what it will be about. But there will be a new Star Trek TV show, something that uh, that Star Trek fans have been clamoring for over a decade. Um, and I'm wondering if the standard that TNG created as far as a show that's about optimism, as, as far as a show that's carrying that forward, can even survive in a new Star Trek series that has now been sufficiently Star Wars-ized through the J.J. Abrams-verse? Well, that's two questions, because the first question is, can it work? I think absolutely it can. Absolutely it can. I don't think there's not a market for optimism. You know, the the a lot of these preconceptions that Mike is describing, I feel very strongly, are not actual preconceptions. They exist largely in the minds of studio executives yes. looking at numbers mm. and looking at hits. And the person that takes the chance is going to reap huge rewards. Look at look at what CBS is doing with Supergirl. Supergirl mm-hmm. is like the anti-Man of Steel. It, it is a show that took all the fun and all the optimism and all the, the joy about a person in a cape flying that was not in the, the big DC movies and put it in this TV show and they are reaping huge rewards out of it. I think the person yep. that takes a chance like that with a new Star Trek show will be equally rewarded. Whether they're going to be given the chance to do it is yeah. problematic. It makes me sad because this decision mm-hmm. was always in the hands of executives. The idea that Star Trek wasn't going to be another television show was always in the hands of executives who were nervous, were disappointed in the ratings, but they're also nervous that they didn't want to uh, jeopardize the box office returns for the reboot movies. Um, so I am I have some cautious optimism there, but um, my my worry is that we are in a Jack Bauer jet post Jack Bauer world, and this is the way that we conceptualize our our heroes in uh, in high high, high conflict uh, action dramas. Well, the concern would be that Star Trek people feel that way. I don't know if you're aware of a project called Star Trek Renegades. Oh yes, oh god, and uh, I've seen it, and it's depressing. <laughs> it's the Dirty Dozen in the Star Trek universe. Oh, you're going to have to explain this to me. I've not heard of this. Um, Renegades is a Kickstarted project. Fan uh, film, basically. It's a fan film, basically, but they have actual professional people involved. Uh, Tim Russ, who played Tuvok on Voyager, and, and uh, uh, Walter Koenig, who plays Chekhov. An Alien Nation guy. What's his, Who's that guy? Um, Never remember him. Um, oh, he plays damn the Vulcan, his name Vulcan just, Ambassador. His name just flew right out of my head. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of professional talent involved with it. Um, Sean Young's in it. Um, what? Robert Picardo's in it. Oh, well, Ooh, he can't get um, any work. Um, you know, it's a... No work for bald men in this industry. Um, there's a lot of talent involved, but the project itself is kind of just wrong-headed. Mm. The idea is that an aged Admiral Chekhov and an aged Tuvok are now the current heads of, of Section 31, which is basically the dirty 
uh, Wetworks operations arm of Starfleet, and they've recruited a crew of criminals and renegades to to go do the missions that they can't give to Starfleet because Starfleet needs to have clean hands. It's it literally is the antithesis of everything that Star Trek is about, and everybody involved with it looks sort of awkward. It's weird because it's sort of repudiating everything that the series is supposed to say, which is that we can be the good guy and it can work. Exactly. And uh, apart from that, the pilot movie is kind of kludgy and slow moving and awkward. And it looks it looks like poor community theater. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, at the same time that this semi-professional project is happening that they were really trying to sell at CBS and they couldn't sell it. They kickstarted it. Um, there's also these amazing fan films happening. There's an effort called Star Trek Continues that yeah. you see on the internet that's yeah. basically supposed to be the fourth season of the original show. Mm-hmm. There's Star Trek Phase 2 from James Cauley and that's got David Gerald involved with it and a lot of, a lot of professional writers have written for it. Um, and they are but much no- more Star Trek than the actual movies. It's not the next generation. That's my point though is but none of these are an attempt to extend upon the sort of the world that we know of Star Trek post TNG. They're all even the reboots. They're all a return to form a return to form on TOS because TOS is the apparently the only saleable product, and that's that's the that is the part that worries me about the idea of them announcing another series. But see, that's it should worry you. But again, I really think that the person that says no, sit down, look at the numbers. This is the most successful Star Trek iteration ever. Period. Mm -hmm. It ran seven years. It got four movies. There are books and comics about it being produced now, decades after it ended. There is an audience. Let's go there. Take a chance. That guy will be rewarded. Hmm. I think so, too. Isn't the problem, though, that, you know, Enterprise had a similar level of optimism to TNG, and it was the last one, and it it is considered a failure? Um, yeah, I mean, isn't that going to make them pretty gun shy? I I think that's the reason why there hasn't been one. Uh, and I think I I would surmise that part of the reason why we're seeing it pop up now is one that CBS now wants to have a flagship show to bolster their new all access CBS on demand subscription service. And two, they finally have determined that uh, they can make enough money from new properties based in the Star Trek universe um, that they could give it a go for TV. Because the executive producer of this new yet-to-be-determined-what-it-is series is Alex Kurtzman, who's one of the original writers and executive producers for the new two reboot movies. So my sense is that this is going to be a J.J. Abrams-verse Star Trek, and uh, Mm. I'm afraid that none of the DNA of TNG will even exist in this space. Aside from a couple Mm. references to Cardassian Ale. If if that's the case, then yeah, you're probably right. As long as it's Abrams and his people, I don't think there's much hope, no. But I I don't know. Uh, The the thing about Hollywood is that they have no memory. Hmm. If, If these guys stumble once and somebody else gets a shot, that's when you're going to get your good Star Trek show. The nice thing about being a geezer Star Trek fan like me is we've lived through a lot of bad shit. <laughs> we've, we, we know that it's cyclical. We don't. I remember when The Phantom Menace came out and all the Star Wars fans were wigging out and feeling betrayed. It's like, 
come on. <laughs> I, li- I live through Spock's brain. You know, I'm, I'm That jaded. was a good show, though. It was good. He was rewiring the connections faster than he, the human. Anyways, uh, um, I want to talk about bad shit because, uh, you know, we, we have got a lot of glowing praise. Uh, I just I made a bulleted list of the uh, of my not so great TNG moments. And I want to see if you guys can add to this. My first one was, oh, God, not another Troy episode. Uh, the second one is Jordy strikes out in the love department. Third one, the deadly clip show virus it was uh, hologram Joe Piscopo, and then the last one is mournfully most episodes involving the Ferengis. Uh, the Ferengi didn't really get good until <laughs> Deep Space Nine. It's true. I That's think true. a lot of it is they gave up on them being uh, a, an actual scary villain and decided that yeah, we can actually say something about capitalism using these guys and actually just create a really fun, amoral character who's just a merchant. Well, in, instead of them just being creepy little, like, snake guys that hiss. Yeah, there's a weird rapiness to them in the original ones, yeah. which is just really <laughs> off-putting. Hitting people with whips all the time. Well, even, even well, they kind of went in, but even in the TNG, they kind of uh, were still transitioning them, right? Because the Ferengis do show up and they're conniving. And I think there is even a... Not, not. It's an indirect, but still on camera, or rather on mic reference that survives a show where there's a negotiation and the Ferengis are on board. They've weaseled the way on board the Enterprise, and uh, the Ferengis are at a like a cocktail party in Ten Forward. And basically, the Ferengi is trying to talk a human woman into bed with him and makes a, makes a hand gesture about the size of his penis, and the woman, the uh, the the background woman goes ah or something and remarks to it. So there is an in-canon reference to Ferengis having large genitalia and exist extant in TNG. I'm afraid I have to break it to you that that's Roddenberry. (laughs) Roddenberry. That was in the Bible. It was. Roddenberry originally wanted Deanna Troy to have six breasts. (laughs) That's um, twice as many as Total Recall. Yeah. He um, need more spandex. No. the, The... Again, this is all documented. The writers would complain that Roddenberry would be, on the one hand, um, forbidding them to have fights and conflict, but on the other hand, he wanted the Enterprise crew to be getting laid a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and this was very <laughs> this was very well, problematic, especially for the future. women on staff. <laughs> it is it is a liberated future, Ryan. I want. Uh, right. Do you have any not so great TNG moments? I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, it, for me, it's the inconsistencies about the way the holodeck works, I oh, guess. Yeah. Really bugs it's me. It's always breaking just, down, it, for God's sakes. That's the such si- a nerdy thing. Well, they they really changed their mind about like whether you can get hurt in there and whether things can leave and whether people in it know that you're not real and whether they're going to comment on your clothes and <laughs> like, I, they're just, it's so inconsistent. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's a really nerdy complaint. No, but they also holodeck shows have that thing where it happen. Maybe like one every other holodeck episode ends with the uh, ends with the uh, the resolution being it was all on the holodeck and show over the the, the <laughs> Deus Ex Machina way to end the conflict. Oh, it was on the holodeck. The holodeck also presents a problem for Data's search for emotions. Which is that we have a machine that can right. create artificially intelligent things with emotions. <laughs> and it seems like you just, you know, patch him in there and find a way to have it so he can laugh. 
No, don't bring it up. Don't bring that up. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's... Don't, don't mention Data's uh, exploration <laughs> of humanity. But those aren't people. We can actually create them just to beat them up in a Western simulation. <laughs> but, you know, of course, Data's a human being. And it, it, there's a lot of uh, those okay. questions that we just don't ask. Well, Data is, as a character was definitely my favorite when I was growing up. And it's not anymore. And that'll save him for my high point. But um, is <laughs> in retrospect, is Data annoying and way overdone? With his sort of you're the bird data. You're the bird with his childlike simplicity. Is it is in retrospect? Is it like is it just goofy now? It is at first. I'd say I'd say the data is a lot goofier at the beginning of the show, where he doesn't understand basic idioms, knowing that you know if he's able to read literature, then he should be able to have those things programmed in. I would imagine that he should understand a turn of phrase, and it gets less silly and it gets more esoteric and interesting with him and Jordy having to sit down and him wondering about why people react the way that they do rather than simply not being able to understand when they're telling a joke or being sarcastic. And obviously he should be able to understand when somebody's being sarcastic because simply being able to go about your day and do your job and get to the rank of lieutenant commander means you <laughs> should be able to understand when you're really being given an order and when somebody's fucking with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Apart from that, the the inconsistency of it, the the function of data dramatically is to be the outsider, mm-hmm. is to be the guy that comments on humanity. He's spot, he's spotlight. And when that's basically. and when that's done well, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. But when right. it's done badly, it's cringe inducing. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the gamble you take with episodic television. I'll tell you the the thing that always bothered me about the show, and I never see anybody else comment on that. I can give it to you in one word, and that word is reconfigure. Hmm. I swear to God, a third of the Next Generation episodes end with Jordy reconfiguring <laughs> some widget <laughs> in order to accomplish something. I think the engine room is made of Legos. <laughs> it's just... You know, he can, he can just kind of re rearrange it into whatever the hell he needs it to be. Well, if they're not reconfiguring, they're inverting the polarity. Yeah. They're bouncing a graviton particle beam off the deflector <laughs> whatever. dish. Whatever. <laughs> <it's, laughs> when the beam comes off the front of the ship, you know it's a I, big deal. You know what? I, I, think it's, I think it's charming. I think the whole Technobabble solution is charming because uh, didn't they have someone on staff that they could pass to? The, they could just write in the mm-hmm. script, insert Technobabble here. Yeah. They would hand it to him. Exactly. And he would, uh, was it Sternbach? Was it Rick Sternbach I, who did I it? I don't know if it was Sternbach or Okuda or who right. it was. It was one of those people. They, they were basically like, you figure out what the what the the you know the catchphrase little uh, like overly intelligent word is here, and then we'll just insert it later. You know, I wouldn't have minded so much if it had been hard once in a while. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's you know, oh. if if we'd seen some sparks fly, if he'd crawled into a tube, if there'd been you know one that didn't work or one that broke in the middle of the operation, I'd have maybe felt better about it. But at the same time, we have the Borg who are, like, held together with, I don't know, hose and duct tape. <laughs> and, and, um, and they're vastly superior to the Enterprise. They can just walk down to their, their engine room, Ikea, and build whatever the hell they right. need to build. Right. Uh, I uh, I wanted to – the last thing I really want to hit on is um, – so the TNG is now getting – 
I mean, I think the TNG is uh, is now like the original Star Trek, kind of now universally available on the streaming services. So um, luckily, we're in a point when we I don't have to do what I did when I was uh, like fourteen or fifteen years old and race home after school every day and hit record on the VHS so I could record the episode that I want to see. It's available all on demand. But um, if you see any of the streaming services, you're mostly going to get the HD remaster versions, which on one end is awesome. Um, actually, uh, Michael Okuda, one of the, the graphic designer who was on all of TNG, said that he helped with the restoration process. He said that he thinks that it that the TNG restoration process was the biggest film restoration project ever because of how much 35 millimeter film they had to go back through of all those seven seasons to reconstruct it. Um, and it was not, it was basically something that was like the TOS remaster where they went back and, uh, and redid those for, um, for HD, except in TOS and in TNG, they had to go back and redo the special effects. And if anyone has seen the TOS remaster, they redid them Mm -hmm. in a way that kind of strips the charm out of the clunky, kludgy, terrible old graphics and uh, in, T- in TNG, yep. they are redoing it, but I think it's a little more faithful to the original the special effects from 1989. Well, I know I watched it on Netflix. I caught up on it the past month uh, watching episodes on Netflix, and I couldn't feel anything that felt like it was new when I watched the remastered version of the original series. I could tell when something was new. Okay, that's a CGI ship. Right. That's a planet that looks a lot clearer, yep. and that's a new Enterprise. And I never got that sense watching the TNG ones. Maybe it was just more subtle. Maybe it's because the series was newer and it was easier to match the look of the things with the actors walking around with the exteriors because I looked at it and I was actually amazed at how well the TNG special effects held up Hmm. because it still looks like we're in the age of building a model that we move a camera around rather than CGI. Because early CGI, if you look at Star Trek VI, which I think is... The first Star Trek movie that has a CGI ship in it, hmm. the CGI bits stick out like a sore thumb now. Yeah, they do. Where I, the Enterprise always looks good on Star Trek The Next Generation. It always looks really cool. It looks modern, and it's aged remarkably well. It's kind of a weird top-heavy ship, but it's weird how it's grown on me. I went through a period of time where I didn't like the design, and then over time, maybe it's just nostalgia goggles, but I've really learned to love the Enterprise D. I mean, it's, I always loved the Enterprise D, but when I look back on it now, and it kind of reminds me of like a 1990 Geometro, Geometro hatchback. I don't know. Something about those <laughs> lines make it just look painfully, or like a Buick Riviera or something. It looks like it comes off a trapper keeper. It'd be floating <laughs> over a modern city. Maybe there's a robot unicorn in the foreground. <laughs> it has that kind of, it definitely looks like it's a design of its era, but despite the fact that it looks very late 80s, early 90s, it's still a cool looking ship. Hmm. And they vacuum that thing constantly because it is clean. <laughs> Actually, my objection to the Enterprise D is never the exterior; it's the interior. It looks like a cruise ship. Mm-hmm. I I would like it better yeah. if it looked more like a naval vessel. I, a Voyager gets a lot of shit, but uh, the design, the interiors looked a little, a little more naval. I guess is what I. I'm old school. I like the idea of Star Trek being about space naval adventure in space mm-hmm. you know it's it's horatio hornblower ranging the galaxy that's that's my idea of what star trek should feel like because that is the big difference between the next gen and the original is that you get the sense that these are people who had to put the entire life on hold and go to live on the enterprise for several years mm-hmm. and if they have a family on earth they haven't seen that family in years 
And the thing that really made NextGen different is that people brought their kids on the Enterprise. And like you said, the cruise ship analogy is actually really good because they have really nice apartments. Yeah. It isn't like in Star Trek Six where everyone who isn't a main lead character has like bunk beds that you see them fall off of when the ship gets shot. Mm-hmm. It's really a sense that it's kind of differentiating himself from the military where it isn't like I'm a soldier serving overseas. I'm over here and my family is way over there. It's no, it's like this is a massive luxury ship cruise ship apartment complex that flies through <laughs> space and uh my spouse still has a job on the ship they may not be in starfleet maybe they're just an artist and they just hang around in the room with all the plants in it painting and reciting poetry and stuff but it's you really a, you really could never get bored as a civilian on the enterprise just because of the holodeck i think and you're yeah. getting shot at every so yeah. often every so well often. it's kind uh, of a dick move to bring your kids on board if you're on the enterprise that's all i'm see, saying well that's kind of my yeah. feeling too which is one of the reasons i don't i don't care for the cruise ship part of it i didn't i like the idea of spouses and families on board i think that's a logical extrapolation of long range space exploration mm-hmm. i th- i think you have to if you're serious about your exploration program, I think you have to construct ships that are essentially mobile space colonies. But then again, it's very unfair to turn around and ask your mobile exploratory space colony to suddenly mediate a war between right. two other planets or any of the other shit that the Enterprise gets dragged into. Every week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Borg have actually beamed onto their bridge. Yeah. yeah. They could get your children. I mean, that's really freaky. I mean, think about all of the emergencies that these kids never know what happens. From their perspective, every so often, that should be the next Yes. Exactly. <laughs> this is a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's like you're just a botanist who's married to like an engineer, and you have no idea what your spouse does during the rest of the day. But occasionally, you get shot at, and you're told to sit around. And they're like, "Oh shit, we got to go to the other half of the ship." They're doing a saucer separation. I don't know what's happening. And occasionally, you hear rumors that maybe the Borg got your boss. And I don't know what's going on. We may die at any moment. But okay. The beautiful thing is, over seven years, they got to do that. There's an episode, I think it's called Lower Decks. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, There's an episode where Picard is trapped with three of the kids, and he's very annoyed about the whole situation because he doesn't like kids. And shit, you know, I'm a military man. I've got stuff to do. I can't have these three rug rats and be worrying about them. Well, what's your solution? Sing sing Farazaka. That's the solution. Um, right. I, I, I think the one where they get turned into kids is the best, though. Oh, yes. oh that was yeah. great. Yeah, oh. that was a good episode. <laughs> and Little Kid Picard. Why did, uh, it's like yeah. the same actor who played Little Kid Picard played uh, uh, Picard's eldest son in the Generations flashback. Oh. Yeah. Anyways, oh, I remember or that. flash yeah. forward, I guess. Uh, that brings me to uh, the last point I want to hit on is that beyond the obvious um, things that I can say about them, for instance, the low point of, of uh, our original Star Trek panel, um, I want to know what your guys' feeling are about the four feature films because they are inexorably the next generation. They are the extension of the narrative and the characters and the arc as started by the next generation. And... Um, Besides that Nemesis nearly tanked the whole thing, um, what? how do you guys rank the four feature films when you regard TNG? How do we rank them? How do you... 
How do you um, regard them? Um, all right, because that's a different question. Because in my head, Nemesis never happened. I ignore oh, it. Head, it's head, not there. Head cannon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I actually um, didn't see it. Oh, okay. Good. You're all the Good better. Good for you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, I'm just going to ask you one question. Have you seen Wrath of Khan? Yeah. Okay, now imagine it less good. You've seen Nemesis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's put it this way. I liked Into Darkness better as a riff on Khan than Nemesis. Oh. Ow. Yeah. Oh, ow. But um, really, I thought Generations was pretty good. Um, I liked First Contact the best, like most people do. Um, I liked Insurrection fine. A lot of people hate on Insurrection. I thought it was perfectly acceptable. It just, you know, everybody said, well, it's a long episode. Well, okay, that's what I paid for. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm okay with that. But, uh, you know, this idea that if it's a movie, it has to be somehow more or different or include a giant fight scene or whatever is something that... That's one of those executive decisions that I would take issue with. Mm-hmm. I, I would be totally okay with a two-hour episode of The Next Generation in theaters, and that's what right. Insurrection was. Well, I mean, First Contact got to give you the, the classic Greg Hatcher fuck yeah moments. There's a lot of them in uh, it's First true. Contact. It's just that you can't turn around and then have another movie where you have to reproduce just as many fuck yeah moments. Like, sometimes you've got to scale it back a little bit. Worf got to kick some ass in in first contact yeah I did and uh, there is something I've heard about online which is the uh, the wharf effect I don't know if you've seen this on TV tropes it's the idea that you have this ensemble cast and one of the guys in the cast is the badass and he's going to beat the crap out of everyone he, everyone talks about what a great warrior or a, a ass kicker this person is but every week you have to introduce a bad guy and the bad guy has to show them they mean business by beating the shit out of the badass. <laughs> and the problem is that the badass is getting beaten up all the time, and you get diminishing returns on whether you really believe this person is the baddest motherfucker in the galaxy. <laughs> and I think the picture of or the TV tropes is a picture of Worf getting knocked back by a Borg, and the caption just says, the master at work. <laughs> but I think Worf he can, actually... He can, take, he can take falls, is what he can do. Yeah, really he earns well. back some of his badassness in First Contact because he gets to cut up some Borg with like a Batleth knife. And yeah, he does. He gets to punch some people. He gets to do some cool stuff. He even gets that angry, defiant moment where Picard insults him. <laughs> and actually, everyone gets a lot of those great like line deliveries, especially Picard, who gets his full-on speech with a line must be drawn here. <laughs> uh, he's fucking great. Goes on full Ahab, you know. Even, you know, Worf gets a full-on Arnold Schwarzenegger tagline right before he blows up some Borg. Assimilate this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, it's a closest to a successful action-y Star Trek that we've had in a very long time. Certainly the only time they did it successfully with the Next Generation crew, because I think mm. it was married to that optimism. It wasn't just this sort of angry running down corridors, getting revenge, um, everyone motivated by uh, angst or you know childhood daddy issues or whatever, but somebody going, no, we're going to save the future, and we're going to go back to a place in our, our history where nobody had hope for things getting better, and we're going to be that hope. Even and it's fun is encountering Abraham Lincoln of that and finding out Abraham Lincoln is like a horrible drunk and going no even somebody like that can be the savior of the future hmm. and there's an optimism about it I think is married to all the zombie violence. Well, you know they, how the uh, the thing that we talked about before on the Simpsons when uh, 
they introduce Poochie the Rockin' Dog as the character. The uh, the exe- the average the marketing execs are like bigger, louder with time travel. They actually did that well in First Contact. <laughs> yeah. It's got all of those things. <laughs> it's a good and it's a good show. Also, it's worth pointing out that technically that was uh, it was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Oh yeah, Frakes. Yeah. And Frakes in the position of the director has all this experience where he gets to make sure that everybody gets to do things that they're good at. Right. Mm. Yeah, I want to let you know that I had my notes on Jonathan Frakes and it was something something Frakes is great. You are a giant Riker head. And I've suspected for a long time, Casey, that the main reason you have a beard is because of Jonathan Frakes as Riker. I think it's to hide the double chin, but I'll take that one. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. See, one of the beautiful things about First Contact for me, it really isn't all the fuck yeah moments, is that they get to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Frakes knew that they were all very funny people, and he let them be funny on screen, which never happens on the original show for years at a time there's a lot of even though it's very much a picard data they get bigger roles than anyone else everybody gets something to do everybody gets a chance and frakes who's the director actually isn't one of the people who dominates the entire movie the way a lot of other directors are like i'm gonna make this all about my character no he's actually a really giving director and it's a really good movie it's some of the best character work everyone has of course, the series it builds on. I think in a lot of ways, it's a lot like The Wrath of Khan, which is it's a sequel to a television episode. Hmm. That That's where true. you bring back Khan yeah. and it's a sequel to Space Seed for Wrath of Khan. This is the, the sequel to The Best of Both Worlds. And it plays on the idea that Picard was once assimilated by the Borg. And it's about, you know, him actually struggling with those sort of feelings that he was one, his body was sort of, you know, taken apart and had things plugged into it. And he has sort of the the leftover trauma from that and also confronting that and stepping on a skull which is pretty cool he can still break that that alien spine in his hands which is pretty badass but well, you know, it has really such an amazing villain right i oh, mean yeah. like vampire movies should have such a good villain as that right i mean she, she's just so scary and oh, yeah. uh I mean, my wife can't even watch the movie. Like, she'll have uh, nightmares. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the Borg are so scary for her. And, I, you know, for me, it was such a, uh, a turning point for me in Star Trek because I always felt like Star Trek was endorsing a very clinical science sort of way of looking at the world um, or sort of even just uh, sort of like looking at becoming a scientist and for them to show Zephram Cochran, like you said, as a drunk, uh, you know, as being the, really the most important inventor slash scientist ever, like in with, within the context of what's important in Star Trek, which is just space flight. Um, I, I thought that was really strange. I, I, I actually had to grapple with it watching it. You know, I had to sort of overcome this like, Oh, he, he's just, he's an alcoholic and he kind of bumbles into this. But no, it's like, no, that's not really how great people are. Great people aren't just guys in lab coats. Like, they're real people with real problems who go through shit, and that's what inspires them to do great things, you know? Hmm. So I, it was such an amazing movie. Well, By far, my favorite out of all those. I think that settles it. There were only two Star Trek Next Generation movies then. <laughs> Three and four don't exist. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. Uh, that's a great place to take a break. And we'll be back with High Point, Low Point. And we're back, 
with this month's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. We're going to do high point and low point for Star Trek The Next Generation. Ryan, I'm going to start with you. What's your low point for TNG? Okay, so I have like, um, you know, a disclaimer here. Uh, my high point and my low point are going to be connected. So just understand that, you know, you don't need to send me hate mail if, it, if you happen to only listen to this point in the too late the podcast <laughs> <laughs> and i know greg is they're is writing one. <laughs> already but, okay so uh my low point is q oh um and i i was kind of saving this you know because you mentioned religion earlier i think that like i find omnipotent characters that are there to annoy the hero so annoying that I throw things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like and the Great Gazoo so, or Mr. Mixia's Pitalik? Exactly. Those were my examples. <laughs> but it was good that you said them because then I, yeah, because I would have pronounced them wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, precisely. Um, I don't like trickster gods in general, but then, like, for some reason, it's a trope. Like, it's a thing you throw into shows, and throwing it into Star Trek didn't work for me um and the fact that they kept using q in other like in voyager uh like i I, you just couldn't get away from him and you know i have some positive stuff about q to say for high point but for low point it's that tng not only uses um an annoying trickster god but picard and and really the crew in general do not react the way that i think people would when confronted with omnipotence um I mean, you put me in the situation, you know, if I'm running a, a starship and all of a sudden a god appears and he puts me in a sombrero and says, hey, lighten up and I'll do whatever you want. I'm going to lighten up. <laughs> like, Why would you not just play along a little bit? And maybe it's to Picard's credit that he never, ever lets like Q have anything, like any, <laughs> any modicum of respect even for Q, let alone worship. Uh, I mean, I, clearly Picard is a badass because I, I don't think any real person could, <laughs> would do that. Nobody would be like, okay, I'll smoke a cigar with you <laughs> if you'll save a few billion people. No. like, <laughs> uh, So I don't know. I, I think it's the completely unrealistic handling of an intensely annoying character that's well acted. Hmm. Oh, he outright threatens Q several times. He's like, that is unacceptable, Q! Unacceptable! And just, he, yeah. he really and will... I can't handle it. It's like, you don't know that he's not going to murder you, and this is just... He's like a cat, and he's like, okay, this has stopped being fun. I'm going to kill the bald man now. Right. Or, or make it so you never existed, ever. You know, or destroy your entire galaxy. Or, you know, whatever. It, omnipotence is omnipotence. You don't just, like, yell at omnipotent things. I don't know. <laughs> I, it doesn't work for me. Okay, good point. Uh, Greg? Low point, please. Well, I hope this isn't too much inside baseball. It does no. kind of speak to... This is what we do. It, 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 um, it does kind of speak to what Ryan was talking about. For me, the low point is generally the first season and the, the constant letdown of almost good. But more to the point, it's the behind-the-scenes clusterfuck that led to that. Because the the first season of Star Trek behind the scenes was very much it was hugely dysfunctional behind the scenes not so much with the crew who is the cast and crew is carrying the show on their backs the writing staff and the production staff there was huge amounts of infighting there was 
Um, Gene Roddenberry was coming into this after a decade of going to conventions and being worshipped as a messiah. And it really had gone to his head. But at the same time, he had no problem with basically looting David Gerald's book for the entire premise of the show. The thing that Ryan brings up about Q comes from, literally, it comes from the criticism that Gerald leveled in his book originally before the the show before the next generation was ever conceived in the world of star trek gerald leveled the criticism that the enterprise was always meeting omnipotent beings who needed the enterprise for something and it was a dumb trope the only time that it worked was with trelane the squire of gothos who wanted the enterprise as a plaything. so in the pilot for the next generation, the first thing Gene Roddenberry does when he needs to pad out Dorothy Fontana's Farpoint script from an hour to an hour and a half is he adds an omnipotent God who wants to treat the Enterprise as a plaything. Um, by the same token, all Gerald's concepts, the, the idea of the first officer leading the away team, the idea that the Enterprise's mission is not military, it is exploratory and diplomatic, the idea that the... Uh, the episodes are not action-adventure, but they are dramas. They are built around Picard having to make a decision. This is all from David Gerald. This is all from mm. his book. And he was not only screwed out of credit despite writing, essentially, the, the series Bible, the format, the guidebook that they give to writers. He was not given any kind of creator credit on it. Mm. But he walked away from thousands of dollars in royalties because at conventions for the previous decade, where Gerald had been appearing on panels with him, um, Roddenberry had promised that there would be gay characters on the Enterprise. Uh -huh. David Gerald is gay. And uh, he wrote a script called Blood and Fire, which is out there. Um, it's in a book of his called The Involuntary Human, because he does own the script, and it's a good script. It's a story about the Enterprise meeting Regulan bloodworms, which is essentially an AIDS allegory. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a rogue scientist is trying to engineer this bloodworm virus into a biological weapon against the Ferengi. And the Enterprise has to deal with the fact that, you know, first of all, there's a contagion that is that is chronic and lethal and it's an, very much an AIDS allegory and it's been engineered and there's lots of ethical questions and it was a really good script. But it had a character in it that was essentially rooming with another guy and it's it's never even said out loud. Gerald knew it was American television. He knew it was the 80s, but they are pretty clearly gay. He was trying to keep the convention promise and Roddenberry was very uncomfortable with it and shut it down. Hmm. And um, so I guess my low point would be not only the first season being such a clusterfuck, but that it being a clusterfuck because Gene Roddenberry, the guy that had been lionized by fandom for optimism and idealism, could not at any point actually live up to what he was preaching. Hmm. That's my low point. Wow. And, and I've got to piggyback on you because season one was my low point as well. I mean, um, there are just unbearable shit shows in that first season and a lot of them some of them are actually re talking about the african tribe planet the african tribe planet is obviously one of the ones that everyone Ooh. talks about i mean a lot of them were repurposed star trek phase two scripts you know um mm -hmm. some of them were just direct ripoffs of tos scripts like the naked now which was the naked time redone almost just beat for beat in uh, tng um but, and don't get me wrong there were some real treats to season one um i liked uh picard's affair with 
uh, Detective Dixon Hill on the uh, on the holodeck. I think that's there's a lot of there's a lot of levity in that show. That's really good. I actually like them introducing the Stargazer as um, Picard's first command. I think that's always that lore is always uh, awesome for Picard. Always something that you want to know more about. Um, but they're just so few and far between in season one. And really, it's it it's fortunate because it actually gets exponentially better by the end of the first season. I mean, you've got like a three in a row three uh, shows in a row one of them is we'll always have paris um conspiracy and the neutral zone all really good episodes in their own right and i think uh without those i mean i think without the fact that the 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 quality was actually increasing uh, of writing and what the uh, the writing and the production quality i think they could have lost the show after the first season and that's why uh nearly losing uh another star trek show because of a really dreadful season one is my low point too Mike, what's your low point? You know, I I really like the future in Star Trek The Next Generation. I, I love the fact that it says that, you know, there is a future where humanity has conquered disease and war and racism and that we get past this need for money and that we'd all get these really cool purple and gray jumpsuits and I'd get to pursue whatever job I'd want to have without fear of needing to support myself. I could be a sculptor if I wanted to be. I could be an archaeologist. And the only thing holding me back is my own ambition and drive to do that thing. So that future is a really attractive one to me. I like the fact that if I want to have a pork chop at 3 in the morning, I don't have to actually make it. I can just tell a machine on the wall to make me a pork chop. I, I love that. I love the idea that you know I could interact with fictional characters on a magical holodeck but i'm really kind of miffed frequently with the weird sterile npr vibe of the star trek next generation future Hmm. there isn't anybody on the enterprise who enjoys low art in the way that i do (laughs) i mean i love violent fiction i love pulp i love action stories and science fiction and comic books and you know I love this sort of stuff that doesn't seem to survive into the 24th century. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, because everyone is just drinking tea on 10 Forward and watching, like, one-man shows and recitals of, like, Shakespeare, <laughs> and everyone, you know, plays, like, classical music. I mean, it's I, the one thing I can say really cool about the Abrams verse is people still listen to the Beastie Boys into the 23rd century. But there's never a sense, and I know I know this is all about not wanting to date the show and not wanting to have people sound like they're coming out of the late 1980s, but it's that part of it where it feels like there's no place for me, the me of now in that future, or that I'd stick out like a, a thumb. And I look at the characters like, you know, Ben Sisko is the only person who shows any interest in sports mm-hmm. in the entirety of Star Trek. And hey, you're forgetting about Parisi Squares. Oh, Paris. I mean, again, it's, it's sort of there's a couple occasional little things like that. And people play poker, but they don't play it in the way that you you see people play poker. Sure. They play it like a bunch of archaeologists playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's like this is a bunch of sterile nerds enjoying low culture, but they make it feel really nerdy way more than it does in real life. Maybe because they're not playing for real money. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I look at there. There is also this this segment of, of Star Trek that. I can't help but notice, which is there's this tremendous underlying social pressure to conform to people who don't fit into that sort of mellow, laid-back, enlightened vibe. 
to the full extent, whether it's Ensign Rowe, who's a Bajoran character played by Michelle Forbes that comes in in a later season, that she's not happy with this sort of utopian federation and points out issues that make the federation less than perfect. And it feels like the show is just trying to shut her up. Like, the show doesn't have a good answer for the stuff she says, so they just got to push her away. And the other one is, Worf gets a lot of good-natured ribbing, but it also kind of feels like he's getting bullied sometimes. Hmm. Both him and Tasha Yar. That they don't fit into sort of the enlightened Shakespeare-reading tropes that you get with a lot of the other characters. And the result is it feels sometimes like the job of Tasha Yar or Worf is to just be wrong all the time. And to be told to simmer the fuck down. Yeah, that don't get so excited. That's why I kind of get drawn to the Klingons, because at least they're fucking laughing a lot. Yeah. And I, like, Lieutenant Worf is the butt of so many jokes, because he doesn't fit into that that sort of model, and you see him feel a little bit uncomfortable. But it, it never feels like there's an ever a need to learn from Worf, rather than just dictate things to Worf. And it comes across as really kind of snooty and patronizing. Like the show is trying to show off at how enlightened and above it all it is. But they just kind of come across like a bunch of assholes that are just hanging out at like the food co-op. <laughs> and looking down their nose. Because I'm not the sad people who eat at fast food restaurants. What? You go to Starbucks? You know, I, you know, my food was created by this sad little orphan boy who now has the ability to blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it's good to be enlightened, but you don't have to be a dick about it. And it feels like occasionally, just occasionally, Star Trek feels feels a little bit fucking snobby about itself and that's my low point <laughs> i don't know i think you i think you can make the case that it's a little more than occasionally when it comes to like uh paternalism towards alien cultures and prime directive issues and first contact protocols there's a, if you unpack that there's a lot of snooty npr paternalism about it yeah, yeah. It's, it just i, I, I mean, it's so easy to put myself in the shoes of somebody like ensign row or war where i'm like if I was there, I could say something like that. Does it mean all the shows, all the characters that I would hope would be my friends are looking down their nose and laughing and rolling their eyes at me? Hmm. And it's hard not to put myself in that position because, you know, I could see myself more in somebody like Barkley or Ensign Rowe than I can in, you know, Jordy or Picard. I, I have almost nothing in common with Picard other than I think he's a badass. Yeah. But I think he's a cool character. But I never have anything to say to him. I have nothing in common with a lot of these people. Hmm. And they get sort of in the way. And they get along with each other, and I like watching that interaction. But it just it feels like a bit of a gated community that I just can't be in. All right. That's great. Uh, okay. Well, then let's take that. Take a deep breath. <laughs> and pull ourselves out of the gutter. Next, we're going to go to high point. We're going to go to the top of the mountain. Let's start with you, Greg. What's your high point for TNG? Well... Truthfully, my high point's kind of esoteric. It's um, it's kind of an expanded universe thing. Uh, mm. My high point is the next generation novels written by Peter David. Oh, okay, um, right on. They are, ex- first of all, he had, even though Peter David has horror stories about working with the licensing people at Paramount and Roddenberry's Lawyer and all the rest of it, they're... Uh, Nevertheless, getting away from the main show that happens every week, you have a lot more freedom. Um, He wrote one. His first novel was a book called Strike Zone, and he took it upon himself to address the two things that people were bitching about during the first season. The first one was that, uh, that there wasn't enough action, and the second was that Wesley Crusher was insipid. (laughs) <laughs> and these were the two right. criticisms that kept getting leveled at the show. And so he took it upon himself to write this book called Strike Zone that had a lot of action and made Wesley Crusher 
very relatable and without contradicting anything. He didn't break the toys, Hmm. but he made it clear that you could tell really good stories about teenage super genius Wesley, even though nobody knew how to do that yet. Um, Then he went on to do a book called Vendetta that was, it made great use of uh, Shelby, the character from The Best of Both Worlds. It was kind of a Borg story, Um, but it was also a bounce off the original series, which was another thing that fans were wanting that the show was determined not to do the first couple of years. It posited, I don't know if you remember the original Star Trek episode, The Doomsday Machine, the big Mm -hmm. flying space log that eats planets. Oh, yeah. David posited in this novel that the one that the Kirk Spock Enterprise found was a prototype. The finished one was coming. And the reason it was coming, the reason it had been built, was as a defense against the Borg. So he constructed this book called Vendetta that was about the collision that was going to happen between the Borg and the new and improved space log planet killer. (laughs) And the Federation and the Enterprise were right in the middle of it. It was an amazing tour de force. Hmm. Um, Then he did a book called Imzadi, which was the story that everybody wanted to know about what really went down between Riker and Deanna Troy back in the day. He told that story. Um, He found a way to work in, um, again, a lot of original Star Trek stuff like The Guardian of Forever. They're just, they're terrific books. Hmm. Many of them were bestsellers and deservedly so, which is amazing for a licensed property, even in hardcover. And it was strictly on the merits. It was the kind of stuff, especially since a lot of these books were coming out in the first and during the first and second seasons of the show. It's like this. Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they owning their heritage and mining some of that original series lore and, you know, doing answer the questions that everybody wants to know? So that's my high point. They're nice. terrific books, and I recommend them unreservedly. Nice. All right, Ryan, to you. High point for TNG. Um, it's putting humanity on trial. Hmm. Uh, like for me, you know, science fiction really is about exploring humanity through sort of flights of fancy. And while obviously Star Trek does it with Q, who's more of a fantasy sort of thing than, uh, (laughs) than a, than a science thing. Uh, I still really liked the fact that they did that. They, the, the, because he's in the bookends, the first and last episode, essentially the entire series is putting humanity on trial. And they, they, and they literally say that in both of those episodes. I, it's such a brilliant premise for a show. Like the, the entire show is just the trial of humanity. I, I really like that they would aspire to that. And we, obviously we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, and of course it ties back to, to Q in that they really could have just kept Q being filling that role which is a judge more than just a um annoying guy who who messes with people um on a very small and uh, uh level in some cases um but uh yeah i i thought that that was like i don't know i think that's the ultimate premise for a show or for uh, for anything uh, and the fact that they literally did it it isn't just that oh we're going to show you what humans are like and how they go right and how they go wrong, but they they literally said, you know, this is a trial. Prove yourself. Let's see how you know. Let's see how humanity does out in the you know, out in this dangerous galaxy. And there's things that you don't know about yet that that are really going to test you. Like what a great I don't know. It's just an amazing premise. Hmm. Excellent. All right, Mike. High point for you. 
Well, we talked a lot about the first couple seasons of Next Gen and said that this show really took a long time to find its sea legs. Um, a lot of people have said that it's the moment where Riker gets a beard in season two um, or season three where they get the, the Nehru collars on their uniforms rather than that sort of open neck Superman look. And it's not a onesie anymore because, oh, man, those they had to get rid of those uniforms because you cannot age in a dignified way in that uniform. Not without a girdle. No, no yeah. it would have been painful. But what I really think is it took a long time. Even though it's clear from the very first episode that the writers and the cast knew exactly what they were trying to do. It wasn't a sense of them throwing things at the wall and trying to figure out what the show is. I think that they had a good idea of what the role of all of the characters was, the premise of the show, the themes of the show from episode one. But what they really took a long time figuring out was how to execute that in a good way, how to actually do this thing so that they could actually pull this stuff off and that the thing that showed up on the screen matched the idea that they had in their head. That's a, a three season arc of quality control and improvement that most shows would never get nowadays. Mm. Most people, and especially most networks would never give a show like Star Trek, the next generation, three seasons to sort of figure out what it is. Usually a show gets a season and not even most of its first season, if it doesn't hit those ratings and it doesn't get, um, exactly where it needs to be right away. You either figure this shit out now or you're gone. And then you're just like Firefly, where you're a show that everyone still talks about 10 years later, thinking what could have been. But Star Trek got that chance. And season three and four is really when it hits its stride. So what was the anchor to me that kept that show going for that entire way before it kept its its legs, before it figured out what it needed to be and figured out how to be it? And that's Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. Mm -hmm. Captain Picard is a fucking badass on this show. And I really think that the, the actor, Patrick Stewart, who plays him, gave the show a legitimacy as a serious, you know, accomplished actor that this show wouldn't have had. Because at this point, it's sort of like you're thinking the, the Star Trek is Kirk and Spock and McCoy and that Enterprise. And that this show is fighting against the, the current that says that's real Star Trek and this is fake Star Trek trying to be that Star Trek. And... Picard was so different from, from Kirk that he wasn't an American. He wasn't a man of physical action the way that he was. He was a cerebral guy. And he had this gravitas and a seriousness to him that said, this guy is the captain. This guy is for real. And this Star Trek show is real because he's on it. That this was a guy who could make diplomatic relations look awesome, that he could drop the microphone on somebody by simply cutting communication on somebody to the point that even Riker was like, you enjoyed that. <laughs> and he's like, you're damn right. <laughs> I really love that. He's the only guy who can make ordering tea look badass. <laughs> <laughs> tea. Oh, gray. Hot. I mean, he's just awesome. I love Captain Picard. And it's not just these little moments and the fact that he can give an end of show speech like nobody's business, because that's really what you need from a Star Trek captain. You need to command the screen, but you also need to be able to defeat somebody by talking and make it stick and make it hurt more than any phaser array or barrage of photon torpedoes ever could. And, and Patrick Stewart as Picard could totally do that. And there are one episode in particular, there's one 
that I think is my Picard episode, and that's an episode from season four called The Drumhead, mm-hmm. where they find a Klingon spy on board the ship, and it leads to a series of witch hunts, particularly against a young lieutenant or ensign who is half Romulan, and he lied on his uh, application to Starfleet because he didn't think he'd get in if he admitted that he was part Romulan. He said he was part Vulcan. And from there, we just get into this prosecutor who comes on, and it turns into essentially an episode about McCarthyism. Picard starts feeling really uncomfortable with how probing and just the ad hominem attacks and the nastiness that gets thrown out that he eventually has to stand up for the right of due process and say, no, this is the beginning of the death of democracy and freedom once we start saying that you can't any denial or any opposition to this just vigorously nasty and ugly process. It's all about just destroying somebody's uh, reputation and killing their career and just having, you know, the the dot of a uh, plane on the side of your plane. It's, it's all about the repudiation of just fear mongering and paranoia. And it's all from Picard giving a speech in court. It's a courtroom drama episode and it is so badass. I really love Patrick Stewart. And he was able to do this in early season episodes when the writing wasn't especially strong, when uh, a lot of the special effects and the sets weren't as good as they were going to get. You had to anchor that to somebody. And he was the anchor that gave the show legitimacy and seriousness. And it felt like a real Star Trek show. And it gave the audience a sense that, yeah, we're serious about this. We're going to go in a different direction. But this is real Star Trek. And that was all Patrick Stewart. And God damn, I love Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. (laughs) Because there's no one else who can make a nonviolent solution to a dangerous situation look so cool. Because that's a hard thing to pull off in fiction. Because we kind of want everyone to be the Punisher sometimes and just blow the shit out of the other ship and then sort of a catchphrase at the end. But this is a character who specifically refuses to be that and never looks like a wimp doing it. And Mm. I love Patrick Stewart. He's my high point. Ah. I'm glad you said that because we get to play off each other. My high point, anyone who has looked at the uh, the panelists' uh, page knows that my high point is Riker. Yeah. <laughs> and here's why. N- number one is my number one. Um, uh, it's kind of cliched that Will Wheaton is sort of the character through which the audience is supposed to relate to this, this world. Um, or at least that's the way us as adolescents probably wanted to relate to it. I I posit that Riker fits that bill better than any of them, and uh, for many reasons, not least of which is the fact that Will Wheaton only survived three seasons. Um, First, Picard is an amazing character. You're right about that. His leadership style, his morality, and his personality are like why the show is so seductive, I think. Um, He's a great role model, but for me, I wouldn't want to be Picard. I would want to work with Picard. Mm. Um, I would want to be his protege, hence Riker. Riker has the freedom to work under the master, learn from him and have his back, gain his respect, but he's also able to express his own command style that's at, is complementary but not opposed to Picard's. And it's a wonderful relationship, the one which I think Riker gets the better deal of. Think about it. Riker gets all the good away team missions. He gets to knock boots with all the comely alien lasses <laughs> and even sports the best beard the 21st century ever created. Um but in all seriousness, like, Riker gets to live the glory, and he himself becomes a role model for Wesley and for all the all the newbie officers that come on the ship. Um, but he still retains the sincerity and the honesty and the earnestness that allows him to typify the praiseworthy Starfleet officer. The best moment for me is uh, an, an episode called The Price. It's about 
uh, when circumstances force Riker to become the Federation's negotiator in a bidding war for a stable, stable wormhole. His opponent is half Betazoid, half human Devanoni Rall, who's this uh, the shark-like guy who's taking every opportunity to outplay Riker and rub his nose in it. Even so far as luring Counselor Troy into bed, um, Ral is expecting to trip him up to be like to shake up Riker at taking his girl um, to spark jealousy in Riker. Um, but Riker sits him down in in ten forward and has this speech, and he says to him, "That's the first bad play I've, I've seen you make. If you can bring happiness into Deanna's life, nothing would please me more. You know, you're really not such a bad sort, Ral, except that you don't have any values beyond the the value of today's bid. That is." Deanna is just the woman to bring some meaning into your sorry existence if you're smart enough to take it, and I doubt you are. Like, so awesome. He's he's completely turned, flipped him on his head, and he wins that. He wins the game. He completely wins the game. For me, Riker, the best. He's number one. That's my high point. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this has been a great time. Uh, I want to thank you again, Greg Hatcher, for coming in for the fifth time. Always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Chaddock, thank you, sir. Uh, thank you. I love it. <laughs> and Mike, let's do this again sometime, okay? Yeah, let's let's. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, and we'll see you again on the other side. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. This is hopeless. Fighting would be preferable. I don't follow you, sir. Mr. Wolf, get with the Shelliac. Yes, sir. Coming through, sir. Pursuant to paragraph 1290, I hereby formally request third party arbitration of our dispute. You have the right. Furthermore, pursuant to subsection D3, I name the Grisellas to arbitrate. Grisellas? Unfortunately, they are currently in their hibernation cycle. However, they will awaken in six months, at which time we can get this matter settled. Now, do you want to wait? Or give me my three weeks? Absurd. We carry the membership. We can brook no delay. Then I hereby declare this treaty in abeyance. Wait. Negotiation is permissible. You enjoyed that. You're damned right. <laughs>